listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, a familiar text, story of Mary and Martha. And I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Lord God, teach us this morning through your word. Speak to our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. A question for you to consider as we open up this morning. How much of what you do in life is necessary? How much of what you do in life qualifies as necessary? When you look at your Google calendar, combine it with a church calendar, add in your work commitments, factor in the school calendar, sports calendar, and extracurriculars, mix in the holiday celebrations and family reunions, sprinkle in the Vikings schedule for good measure, or the Packers schedule if you're a heretic, uh, What percentage of those events would qualify as necessary? Not good, not important, but necessary. In life, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I certainly have, there's a lot to do. Amen? There's a whole lot to do. There's lots of good things to do, lots of important things to do, but how much of what we do is actually necessary? Martha had a whole lot to do, too. When 13, count them, 13, hungry men show up at your front door without warning, you better believe you're going to have some cooking and cleaning to do. Add in the fact that rough-and-tumble young bachelors like these aren't generally known for their hygiene or table manners, especially blue-collar fishermen, and you've got a recipe for a messy house that would make Martha Stewart shudder. A bunch of dirty, hungry, adolescent couch surfers with Jesus as the ringleader and some sons of thunder to boot. So how do you play hostess to a ragamuffin band like this? Well, you strap on your cleaning gloves, break out the Lysol, and get to work. This wasn't a little weekend visit from the relatives, after all. This was 13 young men who didn't even have the courtesy to call ahead of time. 
knock, knock. We just happen to be in the neighborhood. Okay if I stay a while and eat your food? Hope you don't mind. I brought a few friends. I mean, how do you say no to Jesus? But still, there's so much to do. So much to do and so little time. How am I going to pull this rabbit out of the hat? Martha must have wondered. Well, at least I have my sister to help, she thinks, as she applies a little more elbow grease to the dirty floor. So much to do, so many good, important things to do, with more and more stacking up by the minute. She'd have to head to the market to stock up on fish. Then, of course, she had to get the, the guest room all set up. Then off to the vintner to fill up on wine and figure out entertainment for everyone. Right? This is Jesus and his guests, after all. No room for disappointment there. Anything less than a five-star Yelp review just will not do. Martha wipes the sweat from her brow and glances up. She pauses from her work. Wait, what was this? There sat Jesus, surrounded by his twelve disciples. But who was that with them? It was her sister, Mary. Martha can't, she can't believe it. She clenches her fists and grinds her teeth. Of all the selfish ways her sister could spend her time, doesn't she care that I'm doing all the work? Crying out loud, I own the house. The least she could do is provide a little muscle power. Instead, there she sat, not a bead of sweat on her, sitting at the feet of Jesus like a little cherub. Mary wasn't even allowed to do that, was she? Only men were allowed to sit at their rabbi's feet, after all. And here she was, breaking social norms and bucking trends like some kind of spoiled Disney princess. Where did she get off? Martha bites her lip, but her resolve wavers. This is just too much for her to take. She couldn't let Mary get away with it. Standing to her feet, she throws down the towel and steams over to the group in a huff. And she's so hot under the collar, she doesn't even wait for a pause in the conversation. She just bursts out with it. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The room fills with silence. You could hear a pin drop. All eyes turn to Jesus. He's developed the reputation of giving shocking answers, and he doesn't disappoint this time. Looking directly into Martha's eyes and seeing there the mixture of frustration, pain, self-righteousness, and betrayal, he responds in a gentle and intimate tone. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Shocked. And yet, strangely comforted, his words echo through her brain like a gong. Only one thing is necessary. How many things did Jesus say are necessary? One thing. Only one thing. But what about the dishes? What about the dirty floors? What about all of those important, pressing, good, and worthwhile things? What about them? Weren't they necessary too? Don't they matter? 
But Jesus had really said it. Only one thing is necessary. That doesn't seem right to me, does it? After all, there's so much to do, isn't there? There are no shortage of tasks. There are no shortage of good, productive, beneficial ways for us to spend our time and to love our neighbors. But how many things are necessary according to Jesus? Just the one. I don't know about you, but if you asked me on any given day if the thing that I was doing at that moment was necessary, without hesitation, I would reply, well, yes, of course. In other words, I tend to live my life as if everything is necessary, as if everything depends upon me, as if every task is do or die, and like the fate of the world is tethered to whether or not I finish my checklist each day. Which is kind of comical if you stop to think about it. That's how important I genuinely think I am. That if something slips through the cracks, that if I only accomplish seven of the eight things I had set out to do on that day, then I'm a failure, as if I'm Atlas holding the world upon my shoulders. In other words, we as humans tend to believe the lie that my identity lies in how much I do. My value as a person is directly proportional to the quantity of my output. And my accomplishments are the measure of my worth. I want to look in the rearview mirror at the Tower of Babel that I was able to sculpt each day and be proud of, of what I've built with my own two hands. And as Christians, we have a name for this. Pride. Spiritual pride. It's this overinflated sense of self that relies on our own works, our own abilities, our own accomplishments, and puts our trust in them rather than in God. There's an idol out there. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've heard at it, maybe you've worshipped it before. This idol is not made of stone or clay. In fact, like most idols, you can't actually see it at all. I'm talking about the idol of busyness. It's an idol whose temple people worship at every single day. Man, we are busy. We are so busy. We are busier than ever. Ask anyone, hey, how's it going? How's your life going? What are they going to tell you? Busy. Busy. I'm, I'm just so busy, super busy. And we wear it like a badge of honor, as if anyone who is not super busy is less valuable or failing to be all they can be. Saying to, failing to say, I am busy, is just anathema. And when you, you say this, we, we make these statements, I, I'm just super busy, it's really just another way of virtue signaling. In other words, it's a way of broadcasting our righteousness. It's a way of telling everyone else how important we are. Just like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, and thank God I'm not like that person. Look at how busy I am. 
Look at all of these demands upon my time. Look how much people rely on me. Look how little margin I have in my life. You already know this, but we live in a world that is hyper-connected, over-scheduled, running on fumes, and we love to tell everyone about it. Even if, deep down, we're secretly exhausted. The idol of busyness demands everything, all of our blood, sweat, and tears, all of our time and energy and efforts, but it gives nothing in return. We sacrifice and sacrifice at the altar of busyness, but this deity refuses to bless us. In fact, all that it does is it curses us. Because busyness, like all idols, leads to death, not life. Now, what am I saying? Is it wrong to be busy? Is it a sin to have a full calendar? Do you need to repent of putting in overtime at work? Certainly not. That's not the issue. The problem isn't with the things that take up our time themselves. The problem is located right here. It's where it's always been. It's in our hearts. Our hearts, you see, are, they're wired in such a way that we tend to measure our identity by our output. It's just our default operating system. It's the way that we're programmed post-fall, as we derive our worth by what we do and what others say about us rather than what God says about us as Christians. That we are baptized, believing, beloved children of our Heavenly Father. See, when God says that, that declaration, which should be the last and final word, it takes a back seat to what my boss says about me, or what my coach says about me, or what the ACT says about me. The world's value system ends up eclipsing God's value system. And God's word, which is supposed to be the ultimate word, gets reduced to being penultimate. You see, when we fall into the, the busyness trap, we're doubting our identity in Christ. Having a full schedule is not the issue here, again. In fact, if we're being faithful fathers, husbands, wives, daughters, workers, students, athletes, all of that stuff, that, that wonderful stuff that God has given us to do, if, if we are pursuing that as we should be, our lives should be full God calls us to be faithful to our vocations, and you can't do that without putting in the hours. The problem happens, and it's subtle. The Christian word for this problem, of course, is sin. The problem happens when we begin to view our time as our own personal property rather than on loan from God. Sin creeps in when we reckon our time as being up for the taking rather than a gift of God's making. Might be another way we can kind of remember this. This is when sin creeps in, when we begin to reckon or account or view our time as being up for the taking rather than a gift of God's making. Proverbs says this, in their hearts... Humans plan their course, but the Lord directs their steps. See, this is where the idolatry lies. That's the sin 
that leads to death. When we claim our own time as our own, when we see it as my time rather than God's time, and when we amend this verse to say, in their hearts humans plan their course and will determine our own steps, thank you very much. The point of this passage is not be a Mary and don't be a Martha. It's not. You'll notice that Jesus goes out of his way to be especially gentle with Martha here. It's not a harsh rebuke. His harsh rebukes are very clear. We get those all over Scripture. But he repeats her name, which is a way of, of showing his intimacy with her, his, his special love for her. And Jesus doesn't make a public spectacle of her. He doesn't tell her to drop what she's doing. He doesn't even tell her, look, the tasks you're busy with don't matter. I mean, people got to eat. Houses do have to be cleaned. In fact, it's interesting as I was doing some research on this to hear what the early church said about this. It was almost just overwhelming what the different sources were saying. Uh, there was actually much to commend in Martha. One church father went so far as to say that Martha's love was more fervent than Mary's, for before he had arrived there, she was ready to serve him. So this isn't uh, an either-or scenario, as if there's team Mary and there's team Martha, and Jesus is kind of pitting these two sisters against each other, upholding one and shunning the other. Instead, he simply says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. New Testament scholar James Edwards summarizes the message like this, pretty simple, the gospel of Jesus reprioritizes all of life, all of it. The things that we thought were number one, the things that we thought and that seem and that appear to us to be most important do not actually carry that weight, right? See, the one thing that is necessary, the only thing that is necessary is a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to say that again. You've heard it since you were in preschool, many of you probably, but the one thing that is necessary is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else is gravy, falls by the wayside, sitting at His feet, hearing from His Word, learning with fellow believers, and responding in faith. That's necessary. Not just good, not just important, but necessary. And it's the only thing necessary. Everything else is fleeting. It all passes away, however permanent or substantial it may seem. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Or as Jesus commends Mary in today's passage, He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Everything else may be taken away from us, and eventually will, but not our relationship with Christ. The wages of sin may be death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see, through His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus took away the power of sin by forgiving it, 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against you and against me. The little things, the big things, the thoughts and words and deeds of which we are ashamed, the things that keep us up at night, he took all those upon himself, nailing them to the cross by his own sacrifice. And they don't get to accuse us anymore. And that makes a relationship with God possible. So what does all this have to do with being a missionary? Are you asking that question? What's the tie-in here, Pastor? Well, let me tell you this. Last Sunday, in a, a misguided attempt to enjoy the nice weather, I decided to bike to church, uh, foolishly wearing my suit coat and tie. It sounded like a great idea at the time, but three miles down the road and 10 degrees warmer, I quickly realized I hadn't really thought this through, and that surprise, surprise, my wife was right again. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise at this point. But by the time I arrived at church, I was basically one massive sweat stain. I'll just put it that way. But I noticed some things on my bike ride. The things you don't notice when you drive by at 60 miles per hour. I saw cracks in, in the asphalt where I just sort of assumed it was all smooth going. I stopped at the Sauk River. There's this little bridge out there, right? I never stopped at that. And I looked and I noticed, wow, the river actually, it flows in a different direction than I th had thought in my head. For some reason, I thought it, no reason I should have thought this, but I had it in my head. It goes this way and nope, it actually goes the opposite way. I heard birds singing and I felt the breeze on my face and smelled the field and heard the corn stalks rustling together. It was a totally different experience than driving by in a car. My point is this, because I was unrushed and moving at an unhurried pace, I was able to notice things that I otherwise just would have ignored. I could be present in the moment. And in the same way, when we cultivate a lifestyle that makes room for unhurried space and unhurried time, we'll notice things. We'll notice people that otherwise slip through the cracks. See, one of the side effects of an overly busy lifestyle is that people become an inconvenience. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who's in a hurry? It's like you're not even there, right? They keep on uh, they're tapping their feet. Checking their watch, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know they're not taking in anything. It's just in one ear and out the other. You're just an inconvenience to them. You're like a side project. And maybe they're nodding their head, but nothing's really being absorbed. They're just ready to move on to the next thing already. There's a discontent in the present, with the present moment in them. But let me tell you this. Here's the beauty of the gospel, Okay? Once we begin to see our days and our hours, not as up for the taking, but a gift of God's making, once we begin to see that, we can experience true joy and freedom. We are free from always being slaves to our schedules, and instead we are free to linger. We are free to savor, free to actually enjoy, that's right, enjoy, People, we're free to enjoy 
people, the days and the hours and the time that God gifts us with. The gospel frees us to savor. It frees us to linger. I mean, think about this. Think about the best meal you've ever eaten. You didn't want to rush through it, did you? You wanted to chew slowly, to soak up all the flavors, to observe and absorb every nuance of that T-bone steak, because that's all of our favorite foods, right? But if you could have pinch-zoomed in on that moment and made it last as long as possible, you would have done it. See, the freedom of the gospel uncouples our identities from the law. It means we are free from having to squeeze some kind of existential value from each moment. Since each moment is already a gift from God, and since God needs nothing from us because we already have everything in Christ, we can now use our days and our hours for the sake of our neighbors. Isn't that beautiful? In his book, Joining Jesus on Mission, author and pastor Greg Finke, whose ideas I'm basically stealing from a lot during this series. I've heard a good pastor is someone who knows how to steal well. Um, Mixed feelings on that one, but I'm stealing this because it's good. He provides what he calls a neighboring formula, and here it is if you can read my messy handwriting. He says, unhurried time plus proximity plus activity, usually involving food, results in conversation. Those are kind of the ingredients. You put them together, and conversation naturally results. Conversation over time leads to friendship. And once you have friendship, what do you have? Well, you have trust. You have the walls start to come down. And you have a space where you can talk about the big questions of life without fear. And right there, that's your window. That's the window to Jesus. This is not universal. We're painting with broad brushstrokes here, right? But I think we've all experienced this in our own life. Man, there's something to this. We do do well as a church to recover the lost art of savoring and enjoying people the way Jesus enjoyed them. So who might God be calling you to spend some unhurried time with this week? to work toward building friendship with? Who is your one? Who is that one person in your life? As we wrap up today, I'm going to ask you to pray this closing prayer with me. because I think it does a good job of tying everything we've spoken about together. This prayer was written by Father Michael Judge, who was a New York Fire Department chaplain and was actually killed Uh, in the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. So he would pray this every day before he went out to do his chaplain visits. And my hope and my prayer is that this would be your daily prayer and my daily prayer as well as we head out into the mission field again this week. So please, if you would, join me in prayer. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.